0: You've hit Play on the Screen, Companion, an eclectic mix of film and TV recommendations. 70s movies out of New York City. Starting with Saturday Night Fever, which is about a 19-year-old Tony Manero. He has a dead-end job as a paint mixer. He's the middle child of a low-income, dysfunctional Italian family. But none of that matters come Saturday night. On the dance floor, he's the king. Obsessed only with looking good and dancing better, Tony's short sighted ambitions are challenged when he gains a new dance partner, his brother leaves the church, and racial tensions in the neighborhood flare up. It all culminates in a dance contest where Tony decides whether he should remain ill or finally cure himself of that Saturday night fever. So, Andrew. This was your first watch. What were you feeling when it ended? Um, disgusted.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a rough watch. I was not expecting that from a disco movie. Yeah, dude, it was a bit much. The way it opens, the beginning of the movie is just like, oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be really good. Staying alive, playing. Travolta just strutting down the street. It just looks like it's going to be, oh, here's a good happy-go-lucky good-natured kid doing his thing on the dance floor and it's like no dude it's a rough movie
0: that beginning you were totally on board you didn't feel any sense of irony in him strutting around no not really i think the song in the background
1: staying alive is such a jam then he goes to work at a hardware store so he just seems like
0: an upstanding citizen Because it is so heavy with the Bee Gees music in it, were you questioning at all how much it might turn into a musical? No, 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 no. I I knew it wasn't a musical. It's one of the top-selling
1: soundtracks of all time, on top of the Bee Gees being, at that point, the biggest act in the world. I don't want to be like, oh, I'm such a Bee Gees fan and expert, but there's this documentary on HBO about the Bee Gees. It's long. It's like a two and a half hour documentary, but it covers their whole career. And it's fascinating. That enhanced my experience with this movie, knowing that they were such a big hit. And I just knew they're going to put this music in this
0: movie as much as they can. It's because it's the goddamn Bee Gees. Do you remember anything they said about their involvement with this movie and that documentary? They went into
1: it more or less just from the perspective of the soundtrack and how staying alive, more than a woman, The songs that featured in the movie were just massive hits.
0: John Travolta as Tony. I was shocked to find out that he got an Oscar nod for this. Was it surprising to you? And what do you think works or doesn't about that character?
1: I thought it was a really good performance by Travolta. He played a kid who was a smooth talker and one of those guys that knows how to get his way he knows what to say, but when he doesn't get what he wants, he turns on a dime. He played, like, classic sleaze. The family dynamic stuff was, I thought, also really interesting.
0: I come home, you tell me I'm late for dinner, and you know that I gotta work till six o'clock and
1: I can't make dinner in time.
0: You should have been a priest, like your brother. You wouldn't worry about a job.
1: Every time you mention Frank Jr., you gotta crush yourself. He's
0: a priest, ain't he? Father Frank Jr., your brother. Just a friend, Junior. Hey. Oh, shut up, will you? Hey, hey the shirt, wash the shirt, stupid. Okay, oh, pasta. All right, come on. Manger, go ahead. Eat, eat. I got more pork chops than spaghetti. What do you mean you got more pork chops? I'm out of work. Yeah, well, as long as we got a dollar left, we eat good in this house. What? Yeah, I might even get a job myself. 25 years in construction work, I always do him a paycheck. What, six, seven months I'm out of work? And all of a sudden, what? And talking back. All right, all right. I'm talking about getting a job and hitting all me. Right, all right, no hitting, no slapping at the dinner table, okay? That's the rule. Mm-hmm. One pork chop! One! Hey,
1: Frank! It's disgusting, all right? You're sick. We just washed the hair. You know, I work on my hair a long time and you, and you hit it. He hits my hair.
0: That family stuff helped humanize him and. I started it feeling hostile toward the character. He's just such a strutting cock, and he puts so much value in appearances. I didn't like him. I couldn't connect with him at the beginning. And I got worried there wasn't going to be an arc, and I'd have to watch this douchebag the entire movie. (laughs) Thank God they showed he wasn't a complete asshole. Stuff with his kid sister early on. Mm -hmm. He's very warm. And he does a pretty good heel face turn by the end. I think it's a cut above the rest when a character believably plays villain and hero qualities in the same movie. Because he was able to do that, I think it was alright that he got nominated. It was well-deserved. It was a great performance on his part. So, Merriam-Webster defines sleazy as marked by low character or quality. Yep. what came off as sleazy in this film and do you think it added something important to the story
1: what was sleazy about the movie was honestly just the people <laughs> yeah. there's only like maybe a handful of characters that are positive all the way through for instance his kid sister who draws him a picture and that's kind of all you see of her in the movie other than clearing the table I would say that the hardware store owner that he works for is a positive character through and through because the only time he really has a big blow up, he immediately was like, hey, look, sorry, I got heated. You're a good kid. You still work for me. He was a good guy. And there was someone else, too. Oh, his brother, Frank. Yeah, his brother was a good guy. Just
0: conflicted, but a good guy. And I can understand that business owner's perspective, though, because in that scene, isn't it Tony telling him, hey, I need time off right now?
1: Yeah, yeah, he didn't give him enough warning. The hardware store guy was always a great dude. I mean, he gave him a fat raise, all because Tony was, like, so grateful for a small raise. He's like, okay, 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 you deserve more, I get it. But other than that, I can't think of a straight positive character through and through. There were characters who weren't necessarily as nasty as others, but everyone in this movie who had dialogue was pretty much a sack of crap.
0: I expected to see more sleaziness in the actual locations. Brooklyn looked all right, except for that subway car near the end of the movie. I mean, it was covered in graffiti like it was a condemned flophouse. Mm-hmm, yeah, nah. But definitely the sleaziest thing was Tony's crew. They just came off so bad. (laughs) Yeah, it was
1: hard to watch them sometimes. It's always been interesting for me watching movies like that because it is hard for me to relate to any of those types of characters because I have just never acted like that in my life. And so I see it and I just think, how do these guys... I can understand how they get along with each other because they're all pieces of crap. But how does anyone give them the time of day? Travolta's obsessed with his looks. He's a 19-year-old kid. He's a D-bag. In the beginning, he's harmless. Pretty harmless. And then when he's in the club... Everyone loves him. It's like, all right, because he's the dancer. I get it. Like he's really cool. But then poor Annette comes by. <laughs> she's cute. She wants to dance with him, and he's just so nasty to her for no reason through the entire movie. And then of course she starts getting really gross and desperate with him, and it's just not a good look for her. And then of course the ending when she's just like, all right, Tony, I'm gonna let your crew run a train on me because you won't give me the time of day. And that just goes south so hard. That whole five minute window. And that movie just goes south so fast.
0: And they saved it for like the last 15 minutes of the movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's a huge, huge bummer. Everyone, like, peak a hole is in the last 15, 30 minutes of the movie. The first glimpse that I had of Travolta being a bad dude was the casual racism when they first are walking into the nightclub. And I was like, oh boy, that's these kinds of guys. But it's like New York in the 70s. Racial tension in the 70s films is commonplace. So I wasn't like taken aback, like, oh, how would they say that? But it was just kind of like, dude, you know, you're saying that out in the open. They're not even in the club yet. They're just on the street, <laughs> just walking into it. <laughs> They're walking by people saying that stuff.
0: But it's not like it's totally limited to that time and place. As much as you'd like to think it's a relic of the past, I think there's less of it now, hopefully, but the way Tony's crew behaves in the movie, especially when I was in college, even in a place like San Francisco, I saw some neighborhood people that in their own respective ethnic group still had some negative qualities like they do in this movie, and I think that's part of what made it so hurtful is knowing that it's real it really happens you know the way some of them act it's not completely out of the realm of possibility in everyday life
1: 100% agree with you I know that it's not like you know we're not in our Star Trek future yet even though it still happens today it isn't commonplace and so for it to be portrayed as just very casual it's just kind of like huh I didn't clutch my pearls or anything it was just more like oh dude come on man don't say that because they were just being crude It wasn't like, oh, you know, I hate all black people. It was just making dirty sex jokes mixed in with racial epithets. Rhyme games, but just immature stuff. Then at the end of the movie, it does get like, hey, man, take it down a notch.
0: But then Tony does something very admirable toward the end of the movie when he's at the dance contest. And after seeing all the racial stuff, when he wins first place and he's disgusted because he knows it was racially motivated because he had home field advantage against some, I think they were Puerto Ricans? Yes. And he doesn't accept it. He gives the first prize to them. That was a really nice turn. That's something I wouldn't have credited to his character from what I saw at the beginning. It
1: was an admirable thing for him to do, but I didn't feel like this was a guy who was just trying to do the right thing. I think it was a guy who was being fair, and it is the right thing to do to be fair. Yeah, he knew he lost, and he knew that he had home field advantage, but he was being a brat about it, and it just doesn't help that he wasn't referring to them as, oh, the Puerto Ricans won, he just kept using the same racial slur over and over again, so it sullies his kind act by just being like, I'll give it to these guys. I will say one thing I liked about the movie in that dance sequence was when they showed the Puerto Ricans dancing, even as an audience member, you knew they're doing much better than he is. They're killing it. I still figured that he would win first place though, because he's the main character and also he's the king of the club and racial motivations.
0: At the end of the day, even though he does have a monologue where he's talking about how he's tired of people dumping on people and the racial component, I think he gave up the first prize more out of his professionalism as a dancer and less because he wanted to help race relations. Absolutely, yeah.
1: He was throwing a tantrum. He's like, we shouldn't have won. They should have won. It was the right thing to do, but he did it in like, the crappiest way
0: possible. But hey, his decision is still miles above his boys. They would never have done what he did. His friends were all
1: pieces of crap, except poor Bobby. Because he just seemed like the nerd that everyone dumps on and uses for his car. Come on, you must have known a Bobby in your own life at one point. Yeah. The problem is, I'm trying to think of who the Bobby was in my friend's group, and I think it might have been me. If you can't pinpoint the Bobby, it was you. (laughs)
0: Life lessons. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We mentioned the disco component to this movie. It's crucial to the presentation. How much do you think a viewer needs to like that genre of music in order to enjoy the movie? Um, you better like disco if you're going
1: to enjoy this movie. There are dance sequences in the movie that I felt could completely be edited out, and the story of the movie is the same. I don't want to say it's gratuitous dancing, because it's not like it's bad. It's an unnecessary dance sequence, but the song's a jam, and is a great dancer. How much would you say you're a disco fan? Oh dude, disco's great. It's a fun genre. I mean it is pretty samey samey, but disco can be a great listen. Daft Punk did their random access memories album a number of years ago at this point, and it was very disco heavy and it was great and I love the older stuff. I like that genre, but I know my dad hates it. He might fast forward the dancing stuff, because it's just the Bee Gees. Like he likes the Bee Gees back when they were doing their sixties stuff. Not when they turned into the disco group.
0: Oh, I didn't know they had done non-disco
1: stuff. The disco section of the Bee Gees was they reinvented themselves. Like, you know, just doing harmonies like the Beatles and the Everly Brothers. But they are, of course, are most famous for their disco. Because that's when they became the titans that they were.
0: I'm not a huge disco fan. As tracks on their own, I wasn't into all of the music in this. But I forgave a lot of it in context, because that's Tony's scene. I expect to hear disco in a discotheque. What I didn't like was how on the nose the Bee Gees songs were to what was happening on screen. More than a woman, as Tony dances with Stephanie. You should be dancing, as he's dancing in the club. Good thing the Bee Gees didn't write a disco version of Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, or else that would have played during the bridge scene at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, that bridge scene at the end of the movie was a bit much. You mentioned that you felt like some of the dancing scenes could have been cut out. Do you think it ever comes off as the filmmakers using disco purely for marketability?
1: no not really because even with that i feel like they could be edited out but it's just another moment to kind of let tony's character shine as the guy who is the best dancer at the club and the best dancer in his neighborhood that one scene when um he was dancing with that one girl who was just like oh are you as good a lay as you are on the dance floor and like he just wasn't jiving with her on the dance floor fran drescher that was fran drescher Yeah! (laughs) Oh, shoot, yeah. So he wasn't liking Fran, and so he just kind of kicks her to the curb and then just takes over the floor and does that really cool dance number. It's unnecessary, but it solidifies him as like this good dancer, and it's honestly a nice breather from him just being a piece of crap. (laughs) He's dancing now, he's harmless,
0: there you go. He's still a bit of a piece of crap, though, because you can just see how much confidence he has in himself. I don't think that necessarily makes
1: someone a piece of crap. It's just the arrogance and the mistreatment of others after that are the problem.
0: I watched this using a laser disc from 1982, and on the back of the sleeve, it says that chapter marks have been added to skip to every dance sequence. Nice. I hope that mentality wasn't a big consideration during the making of the movie. Use the disco stuff as much as Tony's arc demands. But anything more than that, would just belong in a straight musical at that point. I don't feel this ever got too far with the disco, which makes me wonder, though, do you think this movie could be considered a love letter to disco? Mm.
1: This was the movie that some people believe was the decline of disco because it's when it made it the most palatable for white audiences. It took from the black and queer communities something and just made it, more subdued. It probably did super popularize Disco because of the movie, but Disco wasn't around much longer after 77. It just had a few more years in its tank. It was a good run.
0: It had a good run. I'm not saying it's a fair relationship between that genre and the characters in the movie that like it. But if I was super into disco, it wouldn't be doing me any favors to see Tony's crew so into disco. Yeah.
1: (laughs) If I saw those guys walking around being the pieces of crap they were, and disco was the one thing that they had all in common other than being pieces of crap, I might become a punk kid or a metal kid because of that. Try to go anti-disco as much as I could.
0: You're talking about a movement that really did happen, right? In the 70s and 80s. Weren't there people that went in those directions because they didn't like what disco was about to that extent?
1: Oh, absolutely. Twisted Sister made a name for itself in their early days, specifically talking crap about disco and playing their metal music. Do you have any big criticisms for this movie? It's hard to call it a criticism. It's just the characters, but the cast is largely unlikable. That would be my criticism, but it's still an engaging watch. It's one of those time capsule movies. I kind of like it from that perspective. Like, this and cruising are time capsule movies, I think. And this one right here, it's the discotheque scene. It's people being sluts and a-holes the whole time. And um, it all catching up with them at the end. It's just really interesting.
0: I don't think the subplots feel like they connected enough to Tony's journey. That ex-priest brother character, that was a great detail, but he's got maybe three scenes. You mentioned Tony's younger sister. She seemed cool, but she was in two or three scenes. The subplot involving Annette, who's constantly trying to land Tony. It feels like stuff that happens, but what was the point? Like, that girl, her last scene is really intense, but did Tony learn anything from that, or just another example of sleaze, simply there to show that he's far from being a white knight? I got that early on when he was lighting a cigarette at the club, and she tried to get hers lit, and he ignored her and blew out the match. (laughs) Yeah... It's like, I get it. He's an asshole. (laughs) You don't need to show me another example of him being an (laughs) asshole in the last 10 minutes. (laughs) But that also feels like really 70s about the story. They're not going to wrap everything up in a nice little bow, especially a drama like this. Heck, they'll bring up some big twist or some big moment in the last five minutes, but then there's no denouement. You know, just happen, deal with it. Goodbye, end of the movie, enjoy. Yeah. Now, I've seen some differing opinions about the ending. Do you think Tony and Stephanie actually just stay friends, or was the dialogue a feint, and they were really acknowledging their feelings for each other? I think it was ambiguous enough to go either way. What do you want it to be?
1: I kind of just want them to be friends. I think that they wouldn't work together as a couple They're both a-holes, like they both suck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But they do it in a really interesting way of coming at it from two different angles. He's super narcissistic and she just seems to have a lot of self-doubt.
1: It's not just that she has self-doubt, it's just, oh, I met Laurence Olivier today. It's like, who cares? You got him a cup of coffee. (laughs) The whole time, like every time she mentioned someone famous, she would just talk about how it's like, oh, you know, they said I was super smart and that I was like the best worker there. Now, that could be happening, but really? No. It's not happening every time you fetch someone a cup of coffee or something. I know that there was a sequel. I've also read that it's terrible and I'm not going to watch it. Yeah, let's not talk about the sequel. (laughs) I'm just going to imagine that Travolta and she stayed friends. He used her to get connections, to become a choreographer for, like, movies. And once he became successful, he probably would have ditched her because he doesn't need her anymore. And that's how I see the future.
0: That does continue some of the asshole themes in this
1: movie. (laughs) It absolutely does. I don't think he would change overnight like that. I mean, he had a pretty traumatic night, but nah, he would still be a jerk. Just not on such a scale.
0: If they just stay friends... I feel like that's too much personal growth on Tony's part. I don't believe a guy like that, from the beginning of the movie to the end, would accept just being friends with a woman. He's just too macho that early in his transformation. Maybe a year later I could see that, but I feel like if he knows that nothing's going to happen between them, he's going to start distancing himself. Maybe he'll say we'll hang out, but then he'll never call. (laughs) That's kind
1: of how it goes in my head canon. He's not going to stay in touch after he gets what he needs, whether it's sex or a job, you know, a life.
0: The Screen Companion is available on multiple platforms, including Podbean, Amazon Music Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, and Rumble. Tell us your review, vote for what we should cover next, or let certain guests know they're your favorite via Companion at gmail.com or by posting on the Screen Companion group on Facebook. Thanks to everyone in the States and abroad for listening. Further support the host by purchasing his novel, Traversal, The Weight of Worlds, available in both digital and print formats on Amazon.com. And now, Cruising, in which a serial killer preys on the gay S&M scene, sending beat cop Steve Burns undercover to catch him night after night delving deeper and deeper into this fringe world burns rubs up against explicit sexuality prejudice and his own self-doubt as the pressure mounts to close the case this was also a first watch for you andrew what was your initial reaction to it oh boy they put a lot of stuff in there (laughs) (laughs) it's not an easy watch it's not
1: I had never even heard of this movie until you gave me the movie list. Oh, I wonder what cruising is. I didn't Google the movie, I just Googled cruising where to stream. Okay, cool, it's on HBO Max, I'll watch it there. And then I saw that, oh, it doesn't really have, like, good ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, and so I click on that just to read a couple, and one of the Rotten ratings said, this is a movie that has something to offend everybody, and, by God, really fascinating.
0: It's a time capsule movie in, I would say, a pretty bad way. (laughs) Pacino, he stars as Burns. How do you feel this performance measures up to his other stuff, especially back in the 70s, early 80s? Uh,
1: It's a good performance, but it doesn't measure up to what he was coming off of. With Al Pacino, you had a stretch of time. Like four years in a row, he was nominated for an Academy Award because it was the godfather part one and then it was serpico then it was godfather part two and then dog day afternoon and then he had another nomination before the 70s ended with this movie called injustice for all because i think that was 79 and then you go into this it's unfair to compare it to the other stuff because those were just brilliant work but even just kind of not comparing it to that was a performance that almost anyone could have done I didn't feel like his performance was that nuanced to where it's like, oh, they needed a master of their craft. I don't think any actor could have done the performance he did in Dog Day Afternoon, which is one of, if not my personal favorite Pacino performance. I think most any actor could have served Cruzin
0: just fine. I was thinking of it just more as how well he came off in the part without that question of, well, could somebody else have done that or better and in that sense you're totally right if it's just him in that role and how it worked in the film i felt it exemplified his ability to do morally ambiguous characters now whether that depth is more just from the writing itself and how much of that's actually coming from him and his character yeah it might be more of the premise but he fit the story well I was never watching him going, Pacino, you're just phoning this in. It wasn't as nuanced as
1: it was in The Godfather's Part 1 and 2. I feel like there was subplot elements that weren't as explored as they could have been that were probably more explored in the book. I think there was stuff taken out of the book that would have made his character a little deeper.
0: I have to confess that I got perverse pleasure from bringing you into this episode. (laughs) Because in my mind, anything involving sex, I want you to be a guest. (laughs) Oh
1: my goodness.
0: Because I love, (laughs) I just love your reaction to whatever it is. If it's too many titties, whatever. (laughs) So, that all being said, where do you feel the sleaze comes into play in this? You know where the sleaze comes into play, Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because I've watched this movie. But as you said, not a lot of people know about this movie. And as difficult as a watch as it was, I think sometimes we need to be challenged, whether it's to confirm how we feel about certain issues or to maybe change our minds a little bit. So I want more people to know about this movie, especially because it's like a dark horse bit of Pacino's filmography. So there are plenty of people out there who haven't seen this and like you when you started, have no idea what's in store for them. So where does the sleaze come into play? Come on, get it on record.
1: Absolutely, the sleaze comes from the city, because there's a lot of grimy stuff. It just never really looks good. It's not a good depiction of New York at all. But the sleaze largely comes from the s and clubs, and I would say the overall depiction of the gay community. Like I said, this is a time capsule in like one of the worst possible ways because you can see that this is the gay community being portrayed as just degenerates. And I mean, really, like it's some degenerate behavior going on in the middle of those clubs. There were certain shots where I thought, okay, you see this guy in the background. It's not even in the background. He's like kind of in the middle of the shot, but it's just supposed to be some background character in the middle of the club getting the beach. I'm seeing that and I'm thinking, that probably happened in those types of clubs. I don't know. I've never been to an S&M club. I can imagine that would happen. There was that Woodstock documentary on Netflix about how it all went south, the 90s one, where this guy was telling a story about how in one of the DJ hangers, he saw just like rows of people up against the walls having sex out in the open. That kind of stuff. It's like, all right, that's going to happen in real life. I get it. People do that. So I never felt like that stuff was too much. There was one scene in particular where I thought, no, like <laughs> this, this didn't happen in the wild. <laughs> I refuse to believe. Was it the Crisco? It was absolutely that. <laughs> it's not because I feel like that was, you know what, if that's what people do in the privacy of their homes, great. I know I can come off as a prude on this podcast sometimes, but I really don't care what people do behind closed doors. I, I, it's fine, but I just... It
0: was behind the closed doors of a club. It wasn't
1: happening in Central Park. It wasn't happening in Central Park, but it was happening in the middle of the club. They were surrounded by people, and this dude's just lubing up his fist, and I'm just like, no, no. It's like, oh, what
0: are you going to do? Are you about to bake a pie?
1: No, no I knew exactly <laughs> what was going to happen, and I'm just like, no, this is, I... <laughs> It's one of those things where it stretches believability for me. You know, people getting random blowies in the back corners, <laughs> that doesn't stretch my, my suspension of disbelief is still there. That happens today. That happens in clubs everywhere. It happens. But that was too much. I just can't believe that they would actually do that in the middle of the club. However, I didn't live back then. I wasn't part of that scene back then. It could have been there. And I would say that if there are any listeners to this podcast who lived back then, went to those clubs back then, and can correct me, please, in graphic detail, send a message to the screen companion at gmail.com and let us know. And I'll eat my words. There are certain things I just, I cannot believe that would actually happen in the middle of the club. It's just too much. It's too much cleanup. It's too much of a hazard. And it's nasty. It's just.
0: It's like, it's like, that was a bridge too far for me. It was interesting being a fly on the wall in those scenes. A lot of stuff was coming up for me. What you just said, a lot of it, I find it fascinating, starting with all that stuff happening in the club. Just so many bare asses, especially that first scene. They even do, like, a dolly shot of guys in jockstraps and just their bare asses. There's, like, a string of them, like, six or seven sets of buttocks. And while a lot of the stuff made me uncomfortable, partially because of the decorum and also, you know, it's just not my bag. I think I probably would have accepted it a little bit more if it aligned more with my sexuality, but I would still be a bit uncomfortable with it. That being said... If we're going to moralize it for a second, I would accept that behavior in that club more than I would the Italian-Americans in Saturday Night Fever, because I'm watching this stuff, but in the back of my head, I'm going, well, they're all adults. They're in a club where it's obvious it's an S&M club. Nobody's accidentally going in there thinking they're just going to get a beer and watch the game. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully people watch it and they don't think it's immoral. I don't think it's immoral. So in that sense, appreciate might be the wrong word, but I accept it a bit more than I do some of what's going on in Fever. And then as far as how explicit they got with it and how more explicit it gets if you really think about probably what's happening in some of these moments, I just think back to my college days. Have you heard of the Folsom Street Fair? No. When I was in college, it happened every year in San Francisco, where literally an entire neighborhood would have a gay S&M festival. They would be flogging naked people out on the street. There would be people up on stage, strung up like turkeys. But like with this movie and the club, it was advertised that, hey... Today in this neighborhood, this is what's going on. So if you're walking through there, you're not seeing people with strollers and little babies going through this, right? However, it's blocks of it. And there's gay porn on television screens and vendors selling dildos just right on the street. I didn't really see much of an attempt to shield people's virgin eyes. (laughs) If I could see that going on in circa 2010... I totally believe that a dude would put Crisco on his arm and do that in a dark, seedy club. (laughs) You telling that story, I agree with you.
1: That does open my eyes a little bit. I didn't, because I didn't know about the Folsom Street Fair, but it's just...
0: I was there, man. You were there.
1: (laughs) You were there. Um, I do also agree with your point that it is a room full of adults, consenting adults. It was never a moral issue. It was just always like, dude, come on, like, really? Really? But um, knowing about that street fair now, like the Crisco scene, now it just seems more, I don't want to say it seems okay. The gay community was not portrayed well, I think, in this movie. Every gay character, except for Ted, it comes off as they're portrayed as degenerates and horn dogs. Ted was the neighbor, right? Yeah, Ted was the neighbor who, even in his case, was kind of a gay stereotype because he was a playwright. But that's a very tame, tame stereotype. <laughs> Because he was just a bro.
0: That's funny. I thought you were going to say what happens to him by the end of the movie is
1: worse for depicting gay people. It is. But that's another thing. I mean, that's kind of like an old Hollywood trope. Gay people can't have happy endings. Like, he didn't deserve any of that. It was not a good portrayal of the gay community at all. From a historical standpoint, it is also kind of fascinating that this is the pre-AIDS epidemic. So historically, like, that makes it a little more fascinating. It's a lot. And I don't think the director was portraying it in a way where he was trying to say, look how normal this is. I think the director, the way he filmed those scenes, it was specifically for us as an audience to be kind of like, oh, that's what they do in those clubs? Like, ooh. I don't think the director's lens was trying to make it morally ambiguous or make it look normal or just like, this is what consenting adults can do behind closed doors. I think we were meant to be grossed out.
0: I feel like there were spots in the script that would allude to the film not trying to be down on gays beyond just the setting of the film, because it really adds an interesting texture to set it in the S&M scene. I think Paul Sorvino, maybe him or somebody else, one of the cops mentions early on that it's not the overall gay community, it's a subset. And then when Burns, while he's undercover, and they catch that one guy, but it's the wrong guy, and Burns is voicing his objection to the way the suspect is being treated, you could say it's just little morsels to try to get away with being mean to gay people. But especially back then, if they wanted to get away with it, why even throw any of that stuff in there? Just be as overt as they would want to be back in the 70s, and yet they're not. Okay, maybe it's lascivious the way the gay men are portrayed, especially at the club and in the park. There are scores of them in this movie, and at least for me, I never felt like the movie's trying to imply that they share the villain's murderous impulses. They are the victims, and those two crossdressers at the beginning, I felt bad for them. And I don't think the movie wanted me to hate them.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think that every gay character was meant to be the subject of my ire. I think they could have told the exact same story about there's a serial killer on the loose targeting gay men. They could have told the exact same story with it not being in an s and club. It could have just been gay clubs. People are still going to be nasty in regular clubs. The s and stuff was just
0: kind of pointless. Let me try to change your mind there, please. Okay. Because definitely this gave me a lot of food for thought, this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It was not an easy watch by any stretch.
1: Well, you know, you said that things were coming up when you were watching it, so please elaborate.
0: To answer why why have it be S&M gay living and not just normal gay bars, where they're not so obvious with their sexuality like that, what it came down to, try to justify it, is... It adds an interesting layer besides being outrageous as just a marketing ploy. I was watching those scenes when Burns is undercover and he's getting a lay of the land, and later in the movie, where he's been in it for at least a couple weeks, I got this sense that one of the subplots, not super obvious, but I feel like it was there, Burns dealing with his own sexuality, and I was thinking if I was him, Even if he starts the movie, the straightest guy ever, and he's had sex with dozens of women, if you're in a situation where you're around that many dudes doing such explicit things, not that it's going to turn you or anything necessarily, but just that you have to face it, what your reaction is to it. And it adds some drama and some interesting things in those scenes that wouldn't be there if he's just at a gay cafe and a couple of people are just talking about their Starbucks order. You know, that's not as interesting for any kind of conflict with the character. I'm going to assume you've never been to a gay club?
1: Uh, That is an incorrect assumption, sir.
0: Oh, okay. I've been to a few gay clubs. And I identified with having these men stare at you like a piece of meat. (laughs) They do a lot of stuff with glances and stares in this movie that from what I've heard from interviews with members of the gay community is somewhat accurate, that you can just say something with a look and there's important communication going on there. And me, I'm not a super sexual person, so the feeling of discomfort In a scenario like that, but whereas I could just walk out of the club, Burns is on a case. It's part of his job. He has to stay there, whether it's good for his mental processes or not. And I thought it added something nice to the story. The tagline did mention, as he gets
1: deeper, he struggles with his sexuality. So I was looking for moments in the movie where he's dealing with that. And it is very, very subtle. It's very subtle that he's dealing with it. Because if I didn't know that that was a subplot, I don't think I would have picked up on it. I would still make the argument that the S and M section of it, although I agree with you that like it is something to throw him into a more extreme situation, him being in a gay club versus you know the kink, which is the S and M part of it. I think I guess the kink section of the whole thing I feel is a little um, exploitative. I'll say, the gay clubs that I have been to in my life had male go-go dancers. Either in tidy whiteys or jock straps, dudes walking around in a speedo. So it's not like I went to these gay cafes, as you put it, where we just order a cup of coffee and chat. These were really big clubs, wall to wall bodies. There were a bunch of shirtless dudes. It was still a very sexually charged environment. So I, I think you know, like, it didn't have to be as extreme. I didn't need the Crisco section of it. <laughs> That's really kind of what it is for me. Is like I didn't need it to be something where everyone is there just being overly sexual, tying people to crosses and whipping and all that stuff out in the open. Because I feel like you could still do that stuff even in, I'll say, like an average, air quotes, average gay club environment. You, know, you can have people getting their jollies off in the corner. You can have two guys coming out of the bathroom together, like, wiping their mouths and all that, where it's a lot more subtle, and still have Al Pacino struggling with his sexuality because he's inundated with it. It just seems like every time he goes to the club, there's just even more wild stuff going on. I felt like him struggling with his sexuality was such a subtle subplot that they could have taken it out. It was so brief and fleeting that it was kind of unnecessary, especially with the way they did the ending. The third act just falls apart so hard. Really? I think so, yeah. The very last shot, even that kind of would gut struggling with his sexuality subplot. The implications that they make. How so? The final shot. The final shot of the movie, the final scene, is it implies that Al Pacino was the killer all along because he sends a knowing glance to the camera. In Karen Allen's chair, he has the sunglasses and the hat and the jacket that the murderer wears throughout the movie, which, you know what, if that's what the gay scene wore was aviators and leather, like, everyone would have it, right? Yeah. They had that random moment at the end of the movie where it almost implies that he could have been the killer all along, which would make the struggling with his sexuality subplot meaningless because he's been gay this whole time, or possibly been gay this whole time. So it's just like, all right, like he's been struggling with this because he's been killing the gays. Maybe that's how he gets his jollies. If I remember correctly, the first murder happened after they had sex, right? Yeah. At that point, he's not struggling anymore. He's having sex with these guys.
0: So it's like. <laughs> uh, I think you can still struggle. <laughs> you can still
1: struggle, but you're sampling a little hard at that point, I would say.
0: <laughs> Your interpretation of the very end shot definitely a possibility. Another possibility, because this is very ambiguous, maybe maddeningly so for some viewers, it struck me more as he's looking in the mirror in the bathroom and he can see his girlfriend putting on that S&M gear. And he's looking in the mirror, looking at us, and it's more of an acknowledgement of maybe what he's been through And perhaps that there's still some lingering issues with his sexuality because it's his girlfriend, but she's wearing the paraphernalia of his undercover assignment in a gay S and M scene. I did read some stuff about the possibility of Pacino's character being the killer, which I hadn't really thought about until I read that, and I went, "Oh yeah, that's possible too." And in this instance, I didn't mind that there were multiple interpretations because then it's like just one more. Avenue you can go in to possibly find more enjoyment in the film.
1: I'm one of the audience members that found this maddeningly ambiguous. (laughs) Mainly just because of them switching the actors around for the killer. The weirdest choice, because they had this guy who committed the first two murders, and then they had in the shadows, it was like I couldn't tell it was a different actor for the third murder. But at the end, when they finally catch, and I'm going to air quotes, the guy, it's a completely different actor. You had seen in the club at one point, but he wasn't the guy. Yeah, he looked too tall. Didn't look like the guy at all. It was clearly someone else.
0: His balls didn't look the same. It was obviously not him. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I'm thinking to myself, okay, like they're setting this up as a false flag. Pacino's going to think he has the guy again, but maybe he'll stumble onto the real killer. Because at this point in the movie, it's wrapping up, and I know that we're coming up to the ending. But then, like, that's just how it ends. It's like, oh, okay, he caught the killer, but it's not the same actor. On the final interrogation scene, it does start to imply that maybe it wasn't the guy. He's just being given an offer to take a deal where he admits to all these other murders. Now we're kind of thinking he had nothing to do with, just to wrap up the case. It's not just that you see the actor who committed the first two murders only in the murder sequences. You see him in the background of the club. He walks by Al Pacino at one point. Yeah. So he's there. Like, he's always been there. On one hand, I kind of understand that they wanted to have just the idea of the killer out there. But it did make it so much more confusing at the end when it's clearly a different actor. So I'm thinking it's the wrong guy. Turns out it's the right guy, it might be the wrong guy, and now Al Pacino might have been the guy the whole time? And it's just that one little shot at the end that's supposed to inject that thought into you. Oh yeah, it might have been him this whole time. There was just nothing else that pointed to that. That's where the ambiguity just really bugs me, is because, especially for a mystery movie like this, I thought it was an interesting choice to kind of show us who the killer was first, so we always know. Because then when you see him in the background and you know that Al Pacino's looking for him, it raises the stakes a little bit because you know, okay, he has no idea that the guy's just openly there and will probably kill again that night. And you just have to hope that he gets pushed to that direction. And so when he goes after the first guy and you know it's not the dude, it's, oh, good, you know, like, every cop story should kind of have that where they finger the wrong guy. Now,
0: what were you f***ing doing up there? What is this? You were gonna stick him, weren't you? What are you talking about?
1: Whose room was it? His! Is that right?
0: I told you what we're doing in there is none of your business, so you had no right to come in there, you didn't have to... I want to
1: know what you were doing
0: in there. Nothing! He's tied up lying face down. Nothing. Listen, we got enough to stick you away for three years right now. It's as tight as a chicken's ass. Hey, listen. This guy cruised me. I didn't even know him. I didn't even know his name. I told you it was my room. That's all I'm going to tell you. I, I, want, I want to see you in the What the hell was that? What'd he hit me for? Who paid for the room? What was that? Who paid for the
1: room? what did he hit me for? Who paid for the room? I told you I did! He did, man! But then it looks like they're doing it a second time, but then the movie's like, oh, psych, like, you know, it was him. And it's just very out of place.
0: Was it really a mystery in that If there are multiple killers, we see at least one of them early on. Did you feel like the endgame was discovering who the ultimate perp was that Burns was going to call her? I believe so,
1: and I think the idea of it being multiple killers, the only reason why that bothers me is because all of the murders were done with the same murder weapon. So unless there's multiple guys walking around with steak knives that they lifted from that one restaurant, they had one killing or maybe two victims that died differently, where maybe one of them was strangled or one of them was stabbed with a different weapon. Then I would be like, okay, yeah, there could be multiple killers. And, you know, they got one of them, but there's another one out there. But the fact that it was just the same, it's that steak knife. It just seems like one guy.
0: Maybe that's who the movie is denigrating the most and vilifying gay (laughs) busboys. That there's a slew of gay killer busboys out there with steak knives. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you have a favorite scene or performance?
1: The first actor that they had portraying the killer, I felt was really... He was really intriguing, the way that they had him dressed up. And he had such a unique voice that it made me kind of like, oh, this guy sounds menacing. They cast a really good guy for this killer. So I think that was also kind of a disappointment, him not being the ultimate bad guy at the end. Paul Sorvino was pretty good. You know, he plays a cop. He played a cop in Law & Order. He's a cop in this one now. So I wasn't too surprised. Ted was the best. I loved Teddy. One standout moment for me was when Paul Sorvino goes to Teddy's apartment to look at the body and I guess open the case and he catches the cop from the beginning who was hassling the cross-dressers and essentially raping them. And he just acknowledges like, oh, um, you know, Simone, 6th Precinct because the cross-dresser just gave him a partial name but knew he was a 6th Precinct. So you see that he recognizes that this is the guy who's problematic or at least could be problematic. The cross-dresser just wasn't making it up. You can see him file it in the back of his head and then just move on to the murder at hand.
0: Since you feel that the movie has a negative portrayal of the gay community, what do you think about its portrayal of police going off of what you just mentioned? um, Also not really that good,
1: especially with the end of the movie possibly hinting that Pacino was a killer. I mean, you had the one cop through the film that I felt was really the good cop now they kind of sullied that a little bit potentially at the very beginning with those two cops hassling the crossdressers and then forcing them to go down on him it was just that was awful when the crossdresser first brings it up to the captain he's very dismissive doesn't take it seriously until at the very end he's confronted with it a big reason why they wanted the case wrapped up was political reasons the democratic convention was coming to town they wanted to open and shut it, which is, you know, why us not really knowing if that guy was the killer or not, because they're just forcing him to confess to a bunch of murders that he may or may not have done for a much lesser sentence, which was odd. It didn't really work well. And then the interrogation scene, they had some big buff guy come in in a jockstrap and just slap the crap out of him. That was weird. I don't understand that at all. (laughs) I didn't understand it. I thought it was kind of funny, though, that he came out. like, I need a lawyer. And like, that's who comes
0: out. They had some weird interrogation techniques in the 70s.
1: (laughs) The most realistic part of the whole movie for me was when the wrong guy, it was like Skip Lee, I think was his name. When Skip asks for a lawyer, the guy comes out, slaps him, walks out of the room, and then Skip just yells, who is that guy? Like, that was the most believable part (laughs) of the movie for me. I would be thinking the exact same thing. Who the hell was that? Was that supposed to be a cop? I think so, because who else would it be? but I don't know why they had to put him in the strap. (laughs) (laughs) That was the thing. Like, they could have just had an officer come in and slap him. But, well, at that point in the movie, you also have the officers, if I remember correctly, throwing some slurs around, not being very kind to him just because he was gay. And I think that was probably just meant to be another insult Oh, he goes to SM clubs. He probably wants to get hit by a guy in a jog strap. You know, I think it was just another way of the cops being abusive and homophobic.
0: There's at least six murders that they're looking into. Did it ever cross your mind how little they want to catch the killer, considering they send one guy undercover? <laughs> this was
1: a case that they just kind of had to solve for political reasons and just to get it off their plate. It never looked like Paul Sorvino cared. Too much about actually catching the guy
0: he came off as jaded
1: he had people breathing down his neck he just wanted the problem solved so that he could sleep easier i don't think anyone really cared except
0: for al pacino but then again he could have been the killer all that ambiguity if you ever go to the supermarket and you're buying tofu all that ambiguity i like my tofu firm but when you have that much ambiguity, it turns it into extra soft tofu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But my favorite moment in this, as desensitizing and unnecessary as some of the s and stuff is, that one night where it's a theme night and they're all dressed as cops, I loved that scene so much. It was hilarious, yeah. What is going through Burns' head? He's an undercover cop among a bunch of gay dudes dressed like cops. It was perfect.
1: And he's the one guy who's not in uniform and he gets asked to leave? Yeah. (laughs) That was pretty
0: great. Well, let's end with some TLDL questions. Too long, didn't listen. I'm going to ask you some stuff. Give me some rapid-fire responses. Which movie has the most sleaze? Cruising. Which one has the most interesting protagonist?
1: Okay, in terms of interest, I guess I would have to give it to Tony, but he's just such a piece of crap, I don't want him to sound good.
0: If you've got a movie night with friends, and you know they're up for anything, which one would you put on? Cruising. Damn, you are brave. I might do that too.
1: If they were up for anything... I'm assuming it's more of a hangout session than, like, let's watch some cinema session. If we're going to be just kind of BSing and having a few brewskis and talking crap, then that would be the movie that I wouldn't care if I zoned in and out of.
0: Well, like the way we've been doing on this episode, I think cruising, whether you love it or hate it, it's going to generate the most conversation afterward, don't you think?
1: It definitely will, too, because everyone's going to stop during the Crisco. <laughs>
0: Who gave the best performance, Travolta or Pacino? Travolta. Thinking about their respective genres, which movie is most outside the box and is going to give fans something different?
1: I would give it to Saturday Night Fever.
0: What's harder to watch? The rape scene in Saturday Night Fever or all that public sex going on in Cruising?
1: Um, I'm going to say the rape scene in Saturday Night Fever. Do you have any final words? Um none of these are movies that I would watch with the family. <laughs>